Hi, it's Hal Anderson. Thanks for checking out the daily podcast for my show, Connecting Winnipeg. And if you can, please listen live weekdays from 10 to noon on 680 CJOB. Good morning. I hope you're having a great Tuesday so far. Thanks a lot for uh, connecting with me here on CJOB today for the next couple of hours. We've got lots coming up. You heard the rundown at the end of the start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. So let's get right down to business. Um, on the weekend, there was another nightclub shooting, Bar Italia on Cordon. And Clay Young, who does weekend mornings here on CJOB, had on the head of the police union, Mo Sabrin, to talk about guns on the streets of Winnipeg. Here's a bit of what he had to say to Clay. What a lot of people don't realize is that we're seizing as many guns as what are seen in Toronto. So the uh, the unfortunate reality is that there are guns on the street here in Winnipeg, uh, as many as uh, in Toronto. Um, and gun calls are very common, I would say, daily. It's only when uh, the, the guns are discharged that, uh, that the public really hears about it. But gun calls are a regular uh, thing nowadays, not like 30 years ago when I first got on. If there was two gun calls in a year, um, that, was, uh, that was excessive, and, and now it's a daily thing. So as many guns on the streets of Winnipeg as Toronto, Toronto about four times as big as Winnipeg. Is that true? I talked yesterday afternoon after my show, uh, late in the afternoon yesterday, with Winnipeg's new commander of organized crime, Inspector Elton Hall. You heard a bit of that on the start this morning. You'll hear the whole interview in just a couple of minutes. But first, Global News reporter uh, Joe Scarpelli on guns and gunplay in Winnipeg. Early Saturday morning, shots rang out in a busy nightclub after a man was reportedly denied entry. Luckily, none of the fleeing patrons were injured. Hours later, another shooting. This one involving a man on a bike who had been asked for a cigarette. And just days earlier, a man was shot after confronting a suspicious group hanging around his truck. And those are just the incidents we know about. It's only when uh, the, the guns are discharged that, uh, that the public really hears about it. But gun calls are a regular uh, thing nowadays. Regular enough that gun crime in Winnipeg is comparable to gun crime in Toronto, a city with about four times the population. In 2020 alone, Winnipeg police seized 1,226 firearms. More than 750 of those were used in a crime. That same year, Toronto police seized 1,844 firearms. Around 660 were used in a crime. Experts say gangs are responsible for a good chunk of those. You do have to be a bit concerned sometimes that gangs, you know, tend to recruit uh, violent Uh, individuals and sometimes very impulsive. Winnipeg police say while gun violence doesn't appear to be necessarily going up compared to the last few years, it's still high compared to other cities. The new head of the Guns and Gangs Unit is investigating a potential new entry point for guns and even drugs. 10 or 15 years ago you might see illicit drugs or guns coming up the west coast and then being shipped east across Canada. Now you're seeing it coming, uh, a lot of this coming central into Winnipeg. The inspector says crime is changing across the country, and Winnipeg is no exception. Joe Scarpelli, Global News. Thank you, Joe. So Joe also talked to Inspector Elton Hall. As I said, I spoke with him late yesterday afternoon. Here's my full interview with the new head, the new commander 
of Organized Crime, the Organized Crime Unit here in Winnipeg. Hi there, how are you? Great, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Mo Sabrin, the head of the police union on the weekend, said there are more guns on the streets of Winnipeg than in Toronto, or just as many. Is that true? Well, there's a lot of guns uh, in Winnipeg. We have a higher crime rate than most cities, but uh, our stats are pretty consistent over the last four years. And what I'll say is, for example, in 2017, uh, we seized 720 crime guns, uh, 769 and 18, 790 and 19. And last year, we seized 754 crime guns. This year, uh, as of today, we're at 602 crime guns. So our stats have been pretty steady across the board. In fact, I think this year we'll actually seize less simply because we've been in the community a lot more and working with the community. Um, to answer your question a little more directly, though, Toronto seizes approximately 1,800 guns a year, and Winnipeg is somewhere in area of 1,200. But of those 1,200, uh, close to 500 of these guns, how are uh, safekeeping guns or guns turned in or found or replica guns. So uh, we, use this, we use this crime stat, which is 754 for 2020, and those are guns that are actually used in crimes. It certainly seems like we're seeing more gunplay in Winnipeg. We had our second nightclub shooting on the weekend in recent weeks and another shooting on the weekend. It does feel like there's more of it out there. Yeah, you know, springtime, uh, I didn't think uh, we were all that busy with uh, that type of violence, but in the last four to six weeks, there seems to be more gun violence uh, for whatever reason. So our Guns and Gangs unit are uh, actually working very hard uh, in a community right now trying to figure out what's going on. Where do most of these guns come from? Are they coming in from the U.S. illegally? Are people making them? Are they zip guns? Or are these guns that were stolen out of a house and end up on the streets? You know what? Probably all of the above. Um, Our proximity to the United States uh, has uh, definitely impacted the uh, gun violence in Winnipeg and across Canada. And this is one of the biggest challenges for urban uh, policing in Canada right now. As well, one of these things we need to start looking at is um, the trucking industry, and, and we have Centreport here now. It's been around for approximately three years, and that's uh, uh, obviously a port for uh, trucks uh, to come into Canada, and, and we're uh, centralized for that. So uh, when I look at some of the stats, I do uh, think that a lot of these weapons and a lot of uh, illicit drugs, for that matter, are coming in through Centreport and being distributed across Canada. What about 3D printed guns? If you've got a 3D printer or access to one and the internet where you can find plans for these guns, you can make a handgun, a gun. You can. Um, I've taken some courses on this. It's not as uh, easy as some people think. Uh, There's a technical aspect to it, but yes, uh, a 3D printer, if you can get your hands on one, are quite expensive uh, to make one of these guns. I think it's around $250,000 for a printer. Uh, but it is, uh, it's becoming a trend in the United States, and uh, I believe last year we actually seized uh, a computer and a printer from a residence in Winnipeg who were um, trying to make these weapons. What are we doing specifically to crack down on guns on the streets of Winnipeg? Uh, Mo Sabrin, the head of the police union, made a comment, and I think it's true, that we Winnipeggers typically don't hear about a gun call unless shots are fired, uh, and then we hear about it. What are we doing to crack down on these guns that are out there, not always getting used, but they're out there? So in the last four years, uh, the police service has taken a different approach. Uh, through federal funding, we have the Guns and Gangs Unit now, and their specific mandate is to deal with gangs and guns. And that's what we've been doing, uh, working really closely with the community, seizing as many weapons as we can, but more importantly, working uh, a lot closer with gang members 
and people have access to these guns. As well, uh, the Firearms Analysis Unit is uh, approximately four years old, and this is a firearms unit that investigates gun violence and gun crimes. So, for example, if we seized a gun from a homicide or a shooting, uh, they would take that weapon and they would actually uh, start to investigate and work backwards using a serial number or where it's manufactured, where it came from, and really trying to determine uh, steps and, and process on how this gun ended up in Winnipeg, uh, how quickly it came, let's say, from the United States in, into Canada across the border. And they just do a really thorough investigation that way, and you can really start pinpointing uh, who's trafficking the guns, are these straw purchasers, Why? who and why are these people in Winnipeg getting these weapons. And you mentioned the Guns and Gangs Unit. They do kind of go hand-in-hand hand often. How are we doing with gangs? I, I am seeing more arrests and seizures. Yeah, and so it just goes to the point. Uh, we work very closely, and uh, I use the word intimately because uh, this unit does work intimately with members of the community, whether it's uh, stakeholders, NGOs, whatever it is, or just uh, members of gangs, uh, to try and uh, get uh, weapons off the street, guns off the street, but really to make sure um, uh, there's peace uh, between gangs, as well providing an opportunity for members who want to get out of gangs uh, to exit gangs. We have a gang exit coordinator who can help in this area and, and bridge that uh, contact between the police and some of our uh, uh, social agencies that help. And final question, Inspector, for a Winnipegger listening to us chat right now, how big is the gun problem in Winnipeg? How concerned are you about it? Well, our crime rate in general is higher than most uh, urban centres in Canada, but I can tell you and I can reassure people in Winnipeg, well, we're on the same average as we've been for the last four years. That average isn't great, but we're not seeing an increase. In fact, I would argue that we're starting to see a decrease simply because uh, we are working really hard to seize guns. We're having a problem getting, like, actually seizing more guns than we were last year. So I do think uh, we're, uh, the Guns and Gangs Unit's making a really good um, effort on the street and are making a difference. But I, people should, of Winnipeg should know they shouldn't be alarmed. Um, we're well aware of the situation. We don't see a major increase or a major decrease. We're pretty much status quo over the last four years. Inspector, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Inspector Elton Hall uh, chatted with him late yesterday afternoon. And so uh, I'm going to ask you the question that I ended uh, that interview with. How concerned are you out there? They were talking about this on the start this morning. I was on just after 7 o'clock with a couple clips of, of Inspector Hall, and then they carried on with the conversation. And I want to know what you think. Are you worried? There has been, no question, more gunplay, more Shots fired on the streets of Winnipeg. I mean, the video that you can see at cgob.com from the Bar Italia shooting on the weekend, that's frightening. Uh, and to think that shots were fired into the premises, and thank God, luckily, no one was hurt. It really is, as one police officer said, it's, it's a miracle that nobody was hit, that nobody was hurt. How concerned are you? when you see this and and inspector hall said listen we don't have a great average when it comes to what they call crime guns but the numbers really haven't gone up over several years and the numbers are as Mo Sabrin said comparable uh to the city of toronto toronto four times the population of winnipeg how worried are you i'll just tell you this with me when i was on power 97 back in the day and i was in the bars several nights every week that is probably the biggest reason why I stopped doing what we called bar gigs, right? Is because I was starting to see more knives and guns and stuff in, in bars. And I just thought, you know what? This isn't worth it for me. I'm going to get caught in the crossfire one night. Uh, and, and it just wasn't worth it for me. 
So that's why I kind of ended that part of my rock radio career. Are you worried? I mean, I mean imagine on the weekend sitting on a patio on Corden and this is happening. Pretty scary. Um, and as Mo Sabrin also said on the weekend to our Clay Young, um, you know, usually it's an innocent bystander, or often it's an innocent bystander that gets hit. Sean Jeffrey is on the line, Executive Director of the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. Sean, good morning. Good morning, Hal. Please don't talk about winter. It's still kind of fall. <laughs> well, I'm kind of going to talk about winter because I'm going to talk with you about Christmas parties, which I guess is okay. a sign that winter is, is you know, maybe at that point here, depending when you have the party. Um, restaurants are really going... Uh, the reason we, we thought we would talk a little bit about this today is because this morning, bomber boss Wade Miller was on the start, mm-hmm. and he s- encouraged people to, hey, maybe have your Christmas party outside a, at a bomber game. Um, but uh, yep. I know restaurants are hoping they uh, people choose restaurants, right? Absolutely. It's never been more important to have booked that Christmas party going into a restaurant this Christmas season. It's, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through almost two years of, of pandemic fatigue here. And this is, this is our time. Our holiday season is actually one of the busiest times of the year in restaurant season. So we really I, need this uh, to get those, uh, those parties booked in as soon as possible. Yeah. What is your sense? What are your members telling you? Are people inquiring about Christmas parties? I don't even know if, you know, you never know, right? We're still in a pandemic. How will people handle the Christmas party thing? We haven't seen a Christmas party during the pandemic, really, or, or, you know, I guess last year it was all virtual stuff. Mm -hmm. What about this year? Are they getting calls? We absolutely they're getting calls our, our catering and our, our book uh, party booking since we reopened up in september has actually been has been quite good um you know obviously we're gonna have to pivot and obviously there's not another industry out there who can pivot more than the restaurant industry so we're, we're making sure that uh, obviously the health uh, regulations and all the health orders are being followed but with that being said you know there is definitely an excitement um uh, from manitobans to to get out and have those in-person uh, and holiday parties, you know, we're, you know, as the association, we're going to have our, our first in-person AGM in two years. So we're looking forward to that in November and obviously staying within the health uh, requirements. But, you know, we really need to, to start seeing some of our Manitobans back for these kind of parties thing. Because these are the kind of things that really, really drive a restaurant tour to, to try to go through those cold January, February, March months. We need that holiday season. It's a very large part of our success uh, for the entire year. And we're looking forward to really seeing Manitobans and, uh, and those in, uh, you know, in your business sack into restaurants again. I heard an official with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business the other day talking about consumer confidence. And listen, it's been a year and a half or more of not going out, not having a party, not going to a restaurant, not going to a store to shop. And, you know, with the regulations and rules in place, we can do it safely. And we really do have to think differently about this, don't we? We absolutely do. And, you know, and it's all about hybrid, right? So, if you know, if you don't feel comfortable going out, obviously a lot of business will provide that hybrid option. But I really think it's important to try to get back to the new normal. You know, we've, we've gone through almost two years of, of you know, of COVID uh, regulations and restrictions and ups and downs. And we've got to get to a point where, we're, you know, we're starting to get back to things that, uh, that really are normal in our life. And, and Christmas parties is one of them. I mean, a lot of people book them and look look forward to them a lot of us and a lot of uh, business have committees that plan these things and and it's a good it's a fun environment to be able to plan your christmas party and be able to do that again so you know we're really looking forward to trying to you know have a, a, a great holiday season lots of parties booked doing it in a, in a manner that's safe and continuously 
doing that manner that's safe. And uh, with our new restaurant re- marketing recovery grant, we're really put, you know, allowing restaurants with uh, with a grant, a twenty five hundred dollar potential grant, to uh, to market that out to Manitobans because uh, we're back in business and we want them back in there as much as possible. Yeah, last time you were on with me, you mentioned that that mm-hmm. grant, and I think you you said you've almost got a hundred uh, applications. And many of them, if not most of them, are going to use the money to try and get Christmas party business. You betcha. Yeah, I know. And it's uh, once we're as we're going through the applications, we're sitting at eighty-six applications right now. And you know, we uh, we're seeing about seventy-five percent of those applications are marketing related, and those marketing, uh, whether it be but you know uh, billboards or social media or radio or print, are really focused on getting that information out to Manitobans that we're back for good and that we'd love to see them in Christmas parties is a good part of that. So nice to see it was perfect timing to be able to administer this grant out to our members and other restaurants here in Manitoba. And we're hoping that it makes a, makes a difference uh, in this holiday season. Mm-hmm. And if you are having an office party, maybe you're just doing it at the office, you're not having a full-blown Christmas party, um, you know, don't be afraid to call up your favorite restaurant and get it catered, right, Sean? You know, absolutely. Catering is a massive thing, something that we saw almost triple the amount of business during the pandemic was our catering business. And I think that that's there for good. It's really made a big, big comeback as catering because that's an availability for everybody to enjoy, you know, whatever environment that you have. And yeah, you can have it in your office. So yeah, call your favorite restaurant. They'd love to cater your business. And, and I'm telling you over 18 months, we've figured out a really good way to do it right. Sean, appreciate your time. Pleasure as always. Take care. Health. Sean Jeffrey is the executive director of the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. You know, I love talking weather, right? We've got uh, Kayla Evans, our global news weather specialist. I talk to my weather expert buddy, Bruce Johnson, all the time. We are lucky enough to have joining us now global news chief meteorologist, Anthony Farnell. Anthony, good morning. Good morning to you. How are you Thank doing? You for do- Great. Thank you very much for doing this. You're out with your winter forecast. And I know from talking to Kayla and Bruce and others, uh, we're in a mild La Nina. What is that going to mean for us here in Winnipeg and Manitoba this winter? Yeah, mild La Nina that's going towards the mid-range. So it's getting a little bit stronger. It may actually surpass the La Nina that we had last year. And uh when you have these back-to-back La Ninas, uh, some weird things can happen. So uh, one thing that we're looking for is an early start. That's something that uh, a lot of computer models have been suggesting. We're now seeing signs of it up over the North Pole, what's going on there. So we may get an early start, and, I mean, there may be snowflakes flying next week by the late week in Winnipeg, and then it just goes uh, kind of downhill from there, especially the month uh, late November, December. Uh, turns cold and then uh, it moderates for a time and and that part of the cold should shift back to the west as the winter progresses hmm so you know i i always kind of get it and good for you for doing this because you're you know you're a meteorologist and lots of times it's hard to look way out there right and and make predictions so good on you for doing it Uh, you know i i kind of think like winnipeg and winter in winnipeg is sort of winter in winnipeg right i mean sure there are slight (laughs) variations but you know what it's going to get cold and we're going to get snow yeah yeah and and that is generally the case that's why we we compare compared to average so if you're talking below average it means it's going to be an exceptionally cold winter in winnipeg and uh we are not forecasting anything like we had uh, a few februarys ago where it was just bone chilling for the entire month 
But this is uh, something that we are watching perhaps a little bit further west, Alberta, Saskatchewan. So uh, the cold's going to be on the map. The big question is, does it have staying power? And, and that is, is something that we've seen a lot more of in recent years, this persistence. And uh, some are attributing it to climate change. Others are saying it's just the, the cycle that we're in. But uh, these patterns tend to lock in. And if you're underneath that, say, cold dome or, or polar vortex, uh, watch out. It may be there for, for quite some time. Well, and we are seeing more extreme weather, right? I mean, the latest one is this uh, bomb cyclone on the left coast. Yeah, and, and on the right coast, uh, today into tomorrow, there's uh, near hurricane winds expected for Cape Cod and flood watches and warnings in New England. So uh, there's a lot of symmetry in weather. And when it goes to extreme in one part of the world, it, it often happens uh, in, in other areas. So that's what we're seeing now with, with uh, conditions just going wild. And then it comes down for a few days and then things reload. And uh, with La Nina, you're going to see a, a more active jet stream across Canada. So these storms will, will be tracking and delivering quite a bit of initially rain. But as we get later and it gets colder, uh, we're going to see quite a bit of snow for, for much of the country. So Saskatchewan and Alberta may have more of a winter for them compared to us. I mean, obviously our winters are a little different, but they're, they're maybe going to see more winter. As you look across the country, because this is a national uh, winter forecast, who's really going to get hit hard and, and who's going to be uh, going, yay, uh, we're doing pretty well for winter? Yeah, I think the further east you go, so Atlantic Canada and Newfoundland, uh, they deal with their own set of storms that can get quite severe at times. But uh, there's just so much warm water off the East Coast, and that's been the case for, for several years now, that uh, it has a bit of a moderating effect. So I think they're going to be seeing the, the warmest temperatures just outright, but also in relation to normal. And then, um, I mean, it's mild across southern Ontario, but it's snowy and rainy, and, and we get a crazy thaws in January. So that's something we're, we're looking for this year. Uh, the worst I'm, I'm thinking is yeah, Winnipeg and points west, especially <laughs> later in the winter as, as the true La Nina pattern sets up and, and the cold comes straight from Alaska right down the pipe and into the prairies. And I heard you on with uh, Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham on the news the other day here on CJOB. You've got it all figured out, Anthony. You're going to deliver this winter forecast and then you're going on a hot vacation. <laughs> yeah, that couldn't have timed that better. You, you deliver <laughs> bad news to Canadians, and then uh, yeah, yeah, you head to Europe and then the Canary Islands. I'm going to a wedding there, so uh, I mean, I, I'm leaving early. I guess uh, if I would have waited a, a month or two more, it would have been probably a better move. But uh, still, the timing timing's okay. It's a wedding. Enjoy your uh, enjoy your break for the wedding, and Anthony, thanks for doing this, and thanks for the winter forecast. It's it's helpful as we prepare for what we know is coming. Yeah, no no problem at all. Uh, we'll talk soon. What about three D printed guns? If you've got a three D printer or access to one, and the internet where you can find plans for these guns, you can make a handgun a gun. You can. Um, I've taken some courses on this. It's not as uh, easy as some people think. Uh, there's a technical aspect to it, but yes, uh, a 3D printer, if you can get your hands on one, they're quite expensive uh, to make one of these guns. I think it's around $250,000 for a printer. Uh, but it is, uh, it's becoming a trend in the United States, and uh, I believe last year we actually seized 
uh, a computer and a printer from a residence in Winnipeg who were um, trying to make these weapons. That is Inspector Elton Hall, the head of the Organized Crime Unit, Guns and Gangs Unit, uh, here in the city of Winnipeg, talking about 3D printed guns. I thought we'd go right to one of my regular experts, Alan Castell, the president of Winnipeg's Alpha Technologies. And Al, you've got 3D printers right in your in your showroom there on on Portage. You're big into 3D printing. Um, it, the way the inspector explained it there, yeah, it can happen, but it's expensive and difficult. Is he right? No, no, he's totally not right, Tal. Uh, and good morning. Uh, yeah, I know I'd listened to that yesterday, and, and uh, I think that a year or two ago that might have been right. But the printers he's talking about are, are printers that are shown in some of the documentaries. They're Stratasys printers, and they're ones at universities and that would use. And he's right, there are quarter of a million dollar printers. But you don't need those. Anybody with a decent amount of skill and a couple of modifications to a printer can print out a material such as nylon. And nylon is a material that is strong enough um, to handle the repercussions of a gun. And that's kind of where the problems come into is that a lot of this is about printing the receiver of the weapon. The receiver is a serial coded part of the weapon. A lot of the other parts are not restricted. So it makes it very easy if somebody can build the receiver in a material to be able to get through legitimate means a lot of the other parts that they need to make it a fully working gun. Well, and this is why I wanted to ask you, because when he said that yesterday, I thought, yeah, maybe a while ago that was the case. It, I, I think, tech, again, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, disconnecting from work in a second here and, and how technology mm-hmm. has us connected 24-7. I mean, it's the same with this, right? The technology is advancing so quickly that we're in a situation now where how much would somebody need to spend on a printer and the materials to print a, a, a gun? realistically to print the receiver portion of the gun so the research that i've been doing if you took a 300 dollars starting 3d printer and did maybe 200 dollars worth of modifications to it now again how this is taking into account that you have the skill to know what you're doing right. but again we teach that type of thing and i've taught friends of mine to 3d print items that are legal items in a day so for $500 with the right modifications you could have a printer that could print in nylon and with the right model uh, say a receiver for an AR-15, absolutely you could print that. I, I watch, and, and some of these, and a lot of the issues they've had is how long will they last. So when the legitimate gun manufacturers are doing this, they're saying, oh, you know, this will last for X amount of, of rounds. To me, the bad guys probably don't need a high-capacity amount of rounds. To me, these ghost guns or these ones being printed, if they can get off one or two, to me, the bad guys, that's really all they're looking for. So I think it's a lot more dangerous than maybe some of our police officers think it is. Yeah, and I mean, listen, guns can be made from anything. We, we've heard about bike part, bikes being stolen and parts being used to make these zip guns, right? Um, mm-hmm, yeah. So, listen, we're just talking about something that is happening out there. And um, and I knew that you would sort of know the latest on this because you, you, I mean, people are coming to you to print some really unusual stuff. This is great mm-hmm. technology that can be very helpful, but obviously when we're talking about the manufacture of guns, that's scary as hell. It's absolutely scary because even turning something from a semi-automatic to a fully automatic is a part that can be printed. I mean, these are the, you know, people sometimes I think Hal have the misunderstanding of thinking that you're printing the whole gun and you're not. You're not printing the rifling, you're not printing some of the parts, but for example, larger magazines. 
there's a restriction to magazine size. There's guys that are printing magazines that hold a lot more bullets than that gun is supposed to have. Turning semis into fully automatics, taking handguns and adding stocks to handguns that allow them to be used as rifles. I mean, there's so many parts. And the problem that we have is that we all know that this is an underground and, and a black market type of an operation. So what we right. know, I think we're just touching the surface. I don't think that we mm-hmm. really have any idea of how much of this potentially is being manufactured underground by people who are legitimately good at this, at this craft. Yeah, very scary. And and maybe yeah. it's not. I mean, the inspector himself said that they recently seized a printer and, you know, so it, we know it's happened. I don't think it's happening it a May, lot out there, May but we know it's year. happening. Yeah, no, they seized one May of last year and they actually, the part that they referred to was a receiver. They got the lower receiver for a Glock 19. It was done by the 3D printer. They found a bunch of other parts in the printer itself. So, I mm. mean, this wasn't a guy that was just looking at doing it. This is a guy that had actually created receivers for weapons. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's a little uh, that's bit scary more than stuff. we just found the guy. Yeah, it absolutely mm-hmm. is scary stuff. You know, yep. I, I agree with you. But I but I really do think it's important that I emphasize here, and you you and I have talked about this. Some of the cool stuff that you've done with a three D printer, like uh, what was the one? Uh, somebody contacted you a while ago, and you printed something for them on one of your three D printers that was just such a cool story. Was it a farmer needing a part? Am I right about that? Yeah, no. There's there's farmers actually. That's right. That we had a guy that had actually approached us that needed a part because something couldn't be bought anymore for a piece of equipment he had. So we had the original part that had broken. And so with measuring and, you know, a couple of test runs, we were able to give him something that was able to get him through um, the Mm. season. That was last year. And then even with COVID, all of the masks and the clips and the things that made it a lot easier for people to to, to breathe, you know, things that would hold the mask away from your face. So, so yes, so many things that came up. And what's nice is that you're not waiting for a large manufacturer to make it. The average guy can... With, with the right skill set, the, the right artist skill set or engineering skill set, create something to solve a problem. So you're right. It's unfortunate that the bad guys are getting all the press because there are so many good applications for this technology. Yeah. And we're going to talk uh, after a quick break here in just a couple of minutes with Dr. Toby Rutner about disconnecting from work in Ontario. Um, they're looking at legislation to give people the right to disconnect uh, from work. You know, and here's my thought about this. Even if you could disconnect from work, I'll bet you most people wouldn't want to, right? Because as technology advances and we have the ability to receive messages and, and you know, uh, at least know what's going on at work uh, virtually, I, 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 as long as we can do it, I think a lot of people, I would argue most people, will just continue to do it. I'm, I'm one of them. I mean, how I can either pack 10 hours into 8 or I can pack 10 hours into 10. I mean, I answer emails later on. I actually set my next day up. I don't really disconnect because I find it easier to manage my work world if I spread it out over the time that it needs versus trying to pack it into an eight hour. So I'm right there with you. A lot of us, especially owners of companies or people who who have that work mentality, they probably don't want to disconnect because for some of us, it's what we love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, Al, thanks a lot for this. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks, Al. Al Castell is the president of Winnipeg's Alpha Technologies, joining us on 3D printed guns and disconnecting from work. But again, with technology, um, I'm not so sure that um, most people will want that. I'm, I'm kind of with Al. I, I like uh, being connected a lot more. Now, listen, I don't have kids, and you know, so maybe it's different for me. How is it for you? 
A right to disconnect rule is something some countries like France already have, and now Ontario wants to see something similar implemented here. If the bill is passed, companies with 25 or more employees would be required to come up with a policy that would pretty much spell out when workers are expected to and not expected to answer emails. So our question of the day is well at CGOB.com. Ontario wants to introduce this legislation where employees would have the right to disconnect outside working hours. Should Manitoba do the same? So far, the vote, 75% yes. Manitoba should follow suit. If it happens in Ontario, 25% saying no. Go and vote when you get a second. Let me know your thoughts at 204-780-6868 or hal at cgob.com. Joining us on the phone now, Dr. Toby Rutner, a Winnipeg psychologist. Toby, good, uh, good morning. Good morning, Hal. How are you? I'm good. I'm not so sure. I think some people will love this idea. I can see uh, where some would like it. I think others would say, no, I'm I'm fine with technology allowing me to be connected to work 24-7. But it probably would be better for our mental health, wouldn't it? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, one of the uh, aspects of, uh, of a healthy uh, emotional individual is a feeling of control over their life. So if the intent here is to give uh, the employee more control over their life, I don't know how that would work if Big Brother is looking out for us and not allowing us to work. There are people who take great pleasure at being at work where they feel competent, whereas they might feel incompetent at home. Or being at work means that they're focused on their job and there are limited parameters of what they're expected to do but maybe when they're at home, they end up just doing honeydew work and end up uh, in a situation where they're more stressed than at work. I, I see a significant number of people who feel much more comfortable at work than at home. Uh, during the pandemic, I've seen people who, because they had to work from home, there was no separation between work and home. And we're really yearning to get back into the office where there'd be a change of scene. So mm. I, I think that whenever we, um, whenever we're looking after someone's interest and, and feeling that we need to implement some law to protect them, uh, more times than not, it backfires. Well, and, and Al, we just talked to Al Costello at Alpha Technologies. He said that. He says, I like kind of, you know, always being in touch. It it makes my next day easier. And I'll just give you another example. You know, if I take a week off or two weeks off, I come back to hundreds of emails, which stresses the hell out of me, uh, Toby. And yeah. so I, I would be the same. I, I, I kind of like being connected to work. I'm able to spread it out a little bit. Now, that's not everybody, and I don't have kids, which I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, but that's interesting that you think uh, think that, but I guess it boils down to personality, right? For some people, disconnecting would work, and for others, it wouldn't. That's right, and I think what, what could be, I mean, there are certain people like neurosurgeons who are on call. Uh, refrigerator guys are on call. So they're working uh, and available in case of emergencies. And I think something like this is best worked out between the employer and the employee in terms of how to deal with things. So if I go on vacation and when I come back, I've got a thousand uh, emails to answer. That doesn't really help me. What might help me is to have someone take care of my business while I'm away. 
I think that we can find much more creative solutions between employer and employee by having a smart, creative workplace rather than a legislative one by a bunch of bureaucrats who think that they know what's best for me and what's best for you, Hal. Yeah, and I'm not so sure if the technology exists to connect us to work and we love what we do and we're passionate about what we do, I'm not so sure we can ignore that technology. I I mean, you talk about who's on call in, in the news business, we're kind of always on call. We always got to be, you know, know what's going on, and we're setting up interviews for the next day, and, you know, we're, we're kind of always at it. Well, I've got you, Toby, and you're great at, at answering stuff just kind of off the cuff here. I wanted to get your thoughts on something else. We're talking about guns on the streets of Winnipeg, and, you know, we've seen some shootings lately, including this one on Cordon. There's a pretty scary uh, security video at CGOB.com that people can check out and and we're talking about you know how fearful are people out there uh when there's gunplay like that on on the streets of winnipeg um i'm just curious your thoughts as as a psychologist on that uh, we see something like that and i think naturally we we fear it and, and we worry about going out there that's right and i think that we need to be mindful that such things exist and develop strategies of dealing with it In big cities, what we see are people who learn to look the other way and not get involved because, number one, there's the danger of being injured if there's a shooting on the street. And secondly, if you do get involved as a concerned citizen, then you find yourself involved as a witness, which might make your life more difficult. So I think that when we adjust to the emerging reality that it can be dangerous out there, it's important for us to be alert and to be careful and be able to recognize dangerous situations and and vacate that place rather than get caught up in the middle of a gunfight. Dr. Toby Rutner, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Hal. Same here. Toby is a Winnipeg psychologist. Texter here at 204-780-6868 says, Hal, I agree with uh, Dr. Toby. Let the employer-employee figure out when the worker is on call or out of reach. 